Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. I trust you did have a good July 4th weekend and holiday uh, yesterday. I think um, we can all agree on one thing, and that is that not all is good in America. Or we could at least say that we've seen better days and we hope to see better days ahead, though we do have our doubts. Now, we would not agree on what the problem is, or at least not which problem should take priority over the others, because there are no shortage of issues. And we definitely would not agree on how to fix the problems. Though we are, of course, convinced that our solutions would work if everyone else would just get out of the way. Tracy and I sometimes joke and say, if the rest of the world thought like we did, it would be a whole lot better world. And perhaps we're not really joking. But everyone doesn't think like I think, nor like you think, and therefore there is going to be a lot of problems with no shortage of opinions and ideas on how to fix them. And sometimes they rise to the level where I feel compelled to address them. Now, do understand that I believe I address contemporary issues on a regular basis through the preaching of God's Word, because I believe God's Word is relevant to our day as it is to any day, and therefore rightly understood, it can be applied to the issues that we deal with on a regular basis. But the danger in this weekend is that if I don't get more specific, many will assume that I have my head in in the sand and do not know what is going on around me. Or worse, they will jump to conclusions, which is a very common practice today, and decide that my silence makes me complicit in what is happening. We, of course, have been in a brief series on wisdom. And wisdom is not wisdom unless it is applied to life. And so we talked about the pursuit of wisdom, and last week we dealt with the profit of wisdom, profit in the sense of gain that comes our way because of a life of wisdom. And today, I want to seek to apply those things and talk about the path of wisdom. Now, some of the issues that we face are very straightforward. By that, I simply mean that there are biblical statements about some of the issues, and our task then is to know what the Bible says, to understand it, and then to be obedient to it. At other times, of course, there is no chapter or verse that we can go to, meaning that different Christians are going to come up with different answers and be on opposite sides of the issue. And frankly, we have a hard time handling that anymore in our society or even as a church. We again jump to conclusions and decide that everyone else is wrong. Well, my goal today is to say enough about the various issues so that I anger everyone. And that way you can be unified in your anger toward this sermon. And while that is really not my goal, it might be the result. 
Now, do understand that I do not enjoy getting critical emails. I don't enjoy arguments over controversial subjects. I try my best to avoid these things for two main reasons. Number one is my personality. I'm not bent that way. I don't like to get involved in that. But more importantly, I believe it's my task to minister to a broad range of people. And if I speak too dogmatically about controversial issues, I will lose the opportunity to speak to a broad range of people. You see, when you like what I say, then he's just speaking truth. But when you don't like what I say, it's no longer truth and you decide not to listen to me anymore. I well remember in my first church, we had two serious issues going on at the same time, though as I dealt with the first one, I did not know about the second one. And so this first issue was going on and I decided it had risen to the level that I needed to address it in a Sunday evening message and that is what I did. And following that message, a lady came up to me congratulating me in in essence and telling me how wise I was because she liked the solution that I had come up with to deal with this problem. Then later that week, the other situation, an unrelated situation to the first, came to my attention and I dealt with that one as well. This same woman did not like how I dealt with the second issue. She never came back to church again, one week after telling me how wise I was. She never came back to church, never spoke to me again. If we bumped into each other in the community, she would ignore me. Wisdom is indeed fleeting, which is why we must consistently pursue it. So I realize that we are not going to agree on everything. I just hope you realize that too. Now, I do admit that I am preaching a topical sermon this morning from Psalm 85. Topical sermons are not my preference. I prefer to do expository sermons through a text of Scripture. But because this is topical, it means I am not going to walk through everything that this psalm says. And it also means that I'm going to get some of my points from elsewhere. But we are going to start by reading Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath and you turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Now, before I dive in, 
I want to be abundantly clear about what I am not going to do. And so I want to give you some disclaimers for this path. We're talking about the path of wisdom. And there are some disclaimers that I want to give you to begin with. We are seeking to walk this path, this path of wisdom. And yet we know that there are contemporary minefields along this path. So number one, I am not a prophet, which means I am not going to predict where America is heading or what our future is going to be. It also means that I am not going to state with certainty that God is judging America. Though I do acknowledge that this is a real possibility and one that would be well-deserved if it were true. I am not a politician, nor do I want to be, which means that I do not have well-researched and nuanced arguments for or against immigration, the toppling of statutes, or a host of other hot-button items. It also means that nothing I say this morning will be directed to any particular party or organization. I am not an economist. So do not look to me for answers about how to drive our economy forward or when to open businesses and why. I do have my opinion on these things, but they are just that. They are my opinions. And while everyone is indeed entitled to their opinion, that does not mean that all opinions are equal. So there are greater minds at work that can tell us what we need to do and not need to do with our economy. I am not a biologist, so I do not know all of the facts about COVID, nor how best to defeat it. I've read some articles just like you, but that doesn't make either you or me an expert, nor qualify to tell everybody else how to live their lives. I am not a sociologist, so I cannot explain to you Marxist ideology and how that is intertwined with social justice and the movements behind it. I've tried to read up on this kind of stuff, but I admit I still do not understand it. So I do not have the answers to how we ought to balance the gospel of Jesus Christ with social justice movements. What I am is a preacher, which means it is my job to help explain to you what the Word of God says and therefore how to apply it to our lives. And again, sometimes this is very straightforward. That is, there is a verse of Scripture that deals specifically with issues that we are looking at. At other times, the issue is much more convictional and complex. I am also a pastor, which means it is my job to shepherd or guide you through life along with all of these difficulties, and I believe it is best for me to combine these two things meaning that I seek to guide you as a shepherd by preaching the word of God because it is the timeless wisdom that we need. So now that you know how little I know, perhaps you have no desire to listen to the rest of this sermon or to hear my biblical thoughts on the path of wisdom. But you're not going to be rude and get up, so you might as well hang around and hear what I have to say. So I want to spend the rest of our time with some directives on the path. All of these are going to be general in nature, which I believe can be applied biblically to the situations that we face. And therefore, in some way, 
they are going to speak to all of these things. Now, this is not exhaustive, and they are in no particular order, but they are all important. They will all be one word. So I do not have slides for you this morning because it's going to be very easy to jot these words down. The reality is I don't have slides for you because our graphics people are still worn out from Scott Hood's 44 slides a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and so I told them I would give them a break this week and not have any slides. So the first directive on the path of wisdom is the word remember. While we don't live in the past, we do need to remember it so that we can have a proper perspective on the present and on the future. Although we are not 100% certain of the context or background that led to the writing of Psalm 85, it is very likely that that background is after the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem from their 70 years of captivity and exile in Babylon. An exile that was imposed by God because of their disobedience. Now, you are familiar with this story from the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Cyrus, king of Persia, issued a decree that they could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple. Many actually chose to stay in Babylon because they had become comfortable there, which is indeed a sermon for another day. But you can well imagine that the people who did return did so with great enthusiasm and excitement. They knew they were going to face difficulties. They knew there was going to be delays in the construction process, and yet they came back with much excitement anyway. And so the author here is remembering these things. He is thinking back to how God delivered them from Babylon and allowed them to come back home and rebuild the city and the temple. He restored them to the land. And along the way, he had forgiven them for those sins that had led to their exile to begin with. And so from this example, I want to draw two conclusions about remembering. Verse 1, remember God's favor. Lord, you were favorable to your land. Yes, we all do wonder what is going on in America and what her future holds. But I do trust that we are in agreement that God has been favorable to this country. I am not trying to equate Israel with America. I am simply saying that God has shown his favor on this land of ours for many years as we've grown as a nation, as we have prospered, and as we have protected not only our own citizens, but many people throughout the world. Well, you say, does that mean that God is now lifting his favor? And I do not have an answer for that. I'm simply saying whether God is lifting his favor or not, we must remember his favor in the past, his goodness to us as a people, so that we are reminded that nothing that is going on should lead us to conclude that God does not love us or that God has somehow abandoned his people. There may be discipline for God's people, but even that is for our good. Secondly, we are to remember God's forgiveness. We find this in verse 2. Well, you say, well, why is that important in this current dis discussion to remember that God has forgiven us? Here is the reason it is pertinent to this situation. Because the Bible tells us that if God has forgiven us, we are to forgive others. 
And the way in which we forgive others says a lot about whether or not we understand God's forgiveness of us. And therefore, instead of condemning the other side and concluding in many cases that they must not even be true believers if they don't think like we do, we need to show some grace and forgiveness. Again, I'm not a sociologist, but you remember a few years ago that tolerance was the favorite word of the day. In fact, we were critical of it. We would say things like, well, they're just telling us to be tolerant of everybody so that everybody can live and do whatever they want to do, whether it's sinful or not, and they expect us to tolerate it. And now we look around today and we can't tolerate anything. I mean, you say one word, sometimes that word was 20 years ago, but it's drugged back up. And you can lose your reputation for life. You can lose your job. You can lose everything you've had. So whatever happened to acknowledging that we all make mistakes and therefore we all need forgiveness. So directive number one is the word remember. Directive number two is from verse four. It is the word plead. And this flows from the first one, meaning that we remember how favorable God has been in the past and therefore we plead and pray for him to continue his favor upon us. Verse 4, it says, restore us again. We know that praying for the leaders of our nation and the leaders of our state is clear enough in the Bible. We find this in 1 Timothy, among other places. It is also clear, especially from Romans chapter 13, that government has been ordained by God and established by God, and the men and women who are running that government have been put there by God, and therefore we are to submit to them and be subject to them as long as it doesn't violate our relationship with God. Now, frankly, this is the one thing we know. I mean, we know that we're supposed to pray, and we know that our prayers should include prayer for our leaders and prayer for our nation, which often leads to one of two negative responses. One, sometimes we say, well, what can my little prayers do? I mean, if there are so many people praying for America, why should I add my voice into the equation? And frankly, I have to admit that I've had that same thought. And while we may not be able to explain that, we do know that our uneasiness about all of these prayers should not override the clear biblical command that we are to pray for our leaders and our country. The second negative response comes across in really any topic of prayer. We say things like, well, I have been doing that. And I know many of you pray for our country. I have been doing that and it's not doing any good. Things are just getting worse. So what is the use? I'm gonna quit praying because I've tried it and I know other people are trying it and it is simply not working. I dare say that the most common scripture text in American churches today is going to be 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. You know that text. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And we say, that's right. God has promised if we pray that things are going to get better, and yet we're praying and things are getting worse. Incidentally, that statement in Second Chronicles was given by God to none other than Solomon. 
the man we've been looking at for the last two weeks. He had just finished building the temple. It had been dedicated, and that is one of the verses that God gave him there. Now, we have to be careful not to make a promise to Solomon and Israel necessarily a promise to us. But I also do want to remind you that this 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 is another classical conditional statement. We looked at one of those last week from Proverbs chapter 6. That is, there's an if and then a then. And you can't, ex- you can't embrace the then unless you do the if. That's what a conditional statement is. And there are not one condition, there are four Now, this is a good place to let you know that we are going to have an outdoor prayer service this Wednesday, specifically for our nation out by the volleyball court. It will be at six o'clock and all of you are invited, all are welcome, and it will last for about 30 minutes. Prayer is something we need to do. We must be patient with it and we must continue to plead. I remind you that the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years before God heard them and released them. I remind you that earlier than that, they had been in 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and they were pleading with God for deliverance, and after 400 years, he answered. You see, our problem is we want to recite a few words. We want to claim 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14 and wake up tomorrow morning and everything be better. And it just doesn't happen that way. But again, there are four conditions in that verse, not just prayer. We tend to want to say, well, we've prayed and God hasn't done anything. Well, that's just one of the four. So what are the other three? That's where I'm going to get my next three directives. The first is Humility, if my people will humble themselves. Humility is in direct proportion to wisdom. By that I mean that a wise person is not a proud person. So we ask ourselves, is America, or more specifically, are American Christians humbling themselves before God? And generally speaking, I would have to say, not a chance. I mean, are Americans known for our humility? Travel overseas sometimes and you'll quickly learn that we are not known for our humility. We are known for our arrogance. Americans are known for believing that we're right about everything and we have the best of everything. So we're not humbling ourselves, generally speaking. The next directive from that verse is the word pursue. It says, seek my face. It's what we talked about in the beginning of this series, the pursuit of wisdom, which we equated to the pursuit of Christ. So again, are Americans, or more specifically, are American Christians actively pursuing Christ? Well, again, generally speaking, and I'm going to caution against generalizing in a few moments, but sometimes it's accurate. Studies continue to tell us that America is becoming more and more secular rather than spiritual. So I have to say, generally speaking, Americans and even American Christians are not actively pursuing Christ. The Southern Baptist Convention just came out with our 2019 statistics a week or two ago. We as a denomination 
lost 287,000 members. That is, our membership as a denomination dropped by 287,000 people, which was the 13th year in a row for a membership decline, and it was the largest membership decline in over 100 years. Average attendance in Southern Baptist churches dropped by 47,500 people this past year. And that was before COVID. So who knows what the numbers are going to be next year. We are not, as a general rule, seeking Christ through his church that he has established. Now you say, well, that's just our denomination. I can assure you, that other Protestant denominations are in a similar, if not worse, situation. So can we honestly say that as a people, as a country, we are seeking the face of God? Or would it be more accurate to say we are, in fact, as a people, pursuing the very things we talked about in week number one of this series that we ought not to pursue over Christ? That is wealth, happiness, and health. The next directive is the word repent. Second Chronicles says, turn from your wicked ways. That is the word repent. And I'm going to suggest two areas, specific areas, in which we do need to repent, though, of course, there are countless others. The first is very prominent today. It is the sin of racism which biblically speaking is very clear. All are made in the image of God, and therefore we are not to judge others based on the color of their skin. Now, I am not talking about repenting for the sins of our forefathers, nor am I talking about what is called today systemic racism, which deals with whether or not there is racism inherent in the systems or organizations that are evident. Those are more complex issues that I don't have time to wade into today. When I say racism, I'm talking about on a personal level or on a community level. And to that, many would answer, but I'm not personally racist. And you may not be. I hope you're not. So you may not need to repent of it if you're not racist. But I also know that for many of us, because we've not experienced it personally, we tend to think it doesn't exist when in fact it does. A member of this church told me a story a couple of weeks ago that happened to him personally. Now, it didn't happen around here. It happened before he moved here. But he was pulled over by the police. Most of us have experienced that. I've been pulled over at least half a dozen times in my life. But I've never been afraid when I did because I knew I was in the wrong. I was speeding or whatever. And I've never feared when that cop came to my door. But because of the way this man looked, the cop assumed he was a gang member. And the cop didn't come up to his window and just say, I need to see your registration. He had pulled him over for speeding. Instead, he came up with his gun drawn, pointed at him, and his hands shaking. And speaking to him, saying, are you a gang member? You see, we haven't experienced that. And so we tend to think that it doesn't exist. In a previous church I pastored, a deacon started bringing an African-American man to church. He started picking him up and bringing him to the church. Some people didn't like this, including some members of the most prominent family in the church. 
a family that had many wonderful members in it. But this one man called me one night to complain and say that I would be the death of that church, that I was driving that church into the ground. Never mind that we were actually growing. He was never there enough to know that. But he just concluded that because I was allowing this, I was going to be the death of the church. He told me in no uncertain terms that this man did not belong in our church, that he didn't want the man to come, and he certainly hoped that none others like him would come. I, in turn, told him in no uncertain terms that as long as I was pastor, not only was this man welcome in our church, but I hoped a lot more African Americans would come to our church. Now, again, I, I'm not a big risk taker. I haven't found a lot of things in my ministry that are, as we say, hills to die on, that I'm willing to risk my job and my career for, but that was certainly one of them. A church that is racist is not a welcoming church at all. In fact, it's no church at all. And I am happy to say that we are a welcoming church. I have heard very good reports from African Americans who have come here about how welcoming we are. You received Dr. Kevin Jones, who preached here last year. You received him very well. In fact, he's going to preach here again next month. I also want to say that as a denomination, we have spoken repeatedly on this issue and not just during this current crisis. We passed a resolution in 1995 on the 150th anniversary of the Southern Baptist Convention, and that resolution said that we unwaveringly denounce racism in all of its forms as deplorable sin. And we've not stopped there. We've passed multiple resolutions since then, including another one in 2015, due to the recent escalation of racial tension. We added the phrase into the 2000 Baptist faith and message that we oppose racism. That was not in the 1963 version, we added it. So I think as a denomination, we've been very clear. And therefore, no one should accuse us of being silent and therefore complicit. And again, I think our church has done a commendable job, and I thank you for that. I'm simply asking all of us to examine our hearts, and if we find racism there, then we need to repent of it. I cannot fix racism in America, though we can certainly try, but I certainly can make sure that it's not found in my own heart. And part of that means we need to be very careful in not lumping everyone in together into a generalized negativity. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, I don't like it when I hear people say, all preachers care about is money. Are there some preachers that care about money? Yes, but that doesn't mean all of us are in that category. And likewise, we we don't need to be saying things like, all lawyers are deceptive, all politicians are liars. Well, I mean, I'm not sure about that one. We don't need to be saying things like, all whites are racist, all cops are racist, all protesters are violent. It is often the case that a few get the publicity and the rest are lumped in and all are labeled accordingly. We do that to others. We don't like it when it's done to us. So let's make sure that we're not doing it to others. The second area of repentance I want to mention, and I want you to hear me very clearly here. It's what I'm calling the idolatry of patriotism. I did not say merely patriotism. Patriotism is good. 
I consider myself a patriot. I love America. I am grateful that I was born in America. I am grateful to be an American citizen. I have no desire to live anywhere else. I do want to travel to other countries, but I have no desire to live in another country. I consider myself to be a patriot. In spite of all of the flaws in our nation, it is a great place to live. So patriotism is a good thing. But an idol can be a good thing that is elevated to the place of God. That's the definition of an idol. So what do I mean by the idolatry of patriotism? What I mean by that is if you think your political party or your man or woman in that political party is our savior, that's idolatry. If you think America is going to save the world, that's idolatry. If you're looking to Washington or you're looking to our weapons for trust and security in life, you have made an idol out of a nation or a government. Again, patriotism is good. But we talk sometimes like America is the savior of the world and without her, everything else is going to fall apart and the gospel itself will be ruined. But God is the one who is sovereign and in control. It is not our government nor our nation. And when we get these things mixed up, patriotism, which is good, can become an idol, which is evil. And perhaps this is one of the things God is trying to teach us through all of this. We're almost done. Two more words. Perseverance. Don't give up. Don't give up on our country. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, but let them not turn back to folly. That's our two options, wisdom or folly. Don't give up on the path of wisdom and turn back to folly. And then the final word, the word hope. This psalm, if you go back over the last four verses, 10 through 13, you will discover that this psalm ends on a note of hope. Though again, I'm not saying this is a promise for America, but because of what we know about God from our past, there is every reason for hope in our future. In fact, there are no hopeless situations when God is on our side. Now, I realize I haven't given you all the answers that you may have wanted. I certainly realize I have not solved any of the problems that is currently gripping our nation. But I do hope I've given you some biblical wisdom to help you navigate the issues that are before us. Realizing once again that we will not all agree even on the path of wisdom. That is, we can both be walking the path of wisdom and be in disagreement over the best way to walk it. But we ought to both be trying to walk it. But I do know what I personally need. And I think I know what you personally need. It's found in verse 6. Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? We need a reviving of our relationship with God through Christ. Will you join me in pleading with the psalmist that God would revive us, that God would revive me? And when those things begin to happen in churches like this all over the nation, then I think God will begin, will begin seeing some changes in the nation as a whole. But first, revive us, O Lord, that we may rejoice in you. Let me pray. 
Father, we do thank you this morning for the privilege we have of coming to you in prayer. And we plead, not just for our nation, but we plead for our own spiritual lives, that you would revive us again. That you would revive this church, this community. That you would turn the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls all over this country back to you. Lord, it is clear that we are straying. It is clear that, generally speaking, people, even professing Christians, are not seeking you. They are not humbling themselves. They are not turning from their wicked ways. And we pray that you would turn our eyes back to you. And that we would then see you do a mighty work in our own hearts, in this church, and across this great land. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.